complete chapter 10 of Matthew. And it's a great division, and you'll see why uh, toward the end of the lesson. Now, in Matthew 10 so far, we see that Jesus is preparing to send out the 12 apostles into the mission field because he looks at the masses of people and he sees that he cannot minister to them uh, by himself. There are so many sick people, so many demon-possessed people, so many people who are distraught, who need hope. And so he prepares these 12 men to go out and minister. And he tells them in his instructions, don't take anything with you. Uh, depend upon hospitality. Now, when you get out there, don't expect everybody to be hospitable towards you. Some people are going to be hostile towards you. And he tells them that when they walk into a house and somebody says, well, what are you doing here? Uh, and really does not receive you, just shake the dust off your feet. And those who do receive you bring God's blessings and peace upon the house. Pronounce that. So he's t warning them that there's going to be positive and negative reactions, but they're not to operate on fear. They're to operate on faith. Okay? So now he continues his instructions. And we're going to pick up in verse 34. And it's a very interesting verse, if you read it carefully. Look what he says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now remember he's speaking to the apostles who are being sent out there. Okay? And I want you to notice the word in verse 34, think. You see that? Don't think. Don't suppose something. Which means that they are thinking this. And they are supposing this. And what they're supposing is this. What they think is that when Messiah comes, He's going to bring about universal peace on earth. He's going to deliver Israel from under Roman bondage and he's going to set up God's kingdom on the earth and there's going to be peace. And guess what he says? You're surmising wrongly. That's not my mission right now. I'm not here to bring peace, but I'm here to bring what? A sword. Now, he's not talking about a literal sword. He's talking metaphorically. Uh, what does a sword do? A sword divides. It splits. It cuts. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying that his mission, this round, let's put it that way, is not to bring unity, but actually it's going to have a divisive nature to it. And that's the truth. These guys are going to go out and preach the gospel, and guess what? There'll be divisions. They'll preach the gospel in a household, and one member of that household will accept the gospel and follow Jesus as Messiah, and others will reject him. So that's the point that he wants to make. This was Israel's mistake. They had a false concept of what Messiah would do. The Old Testament said that when Messiah comes, he's going to set up the kingdom on earth. So here Jesus proclaims himself to be the Messiah. They assume that that's what he's going to do. But he's going to do it in stages. He's not going to do it all at once. Okay? And this message is going to bring about divisions. And so it will reveal, the gospel reveals the hearts of people, those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ, and there's never a middle ground there. When you cut something in half, guess what? It's cut in half. There's no middle ground. Either you're for Christ or you're against Christ. Okay? Now look at the kind of divisions that Christ and his gospel will cause. Look at verse 35. First of all, for I have come to set a man against his father, 
That would be a son against his father. A daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Notice Jesus takes the responsibility for doing that. I have come to cause this to happen. You see that? In verse 35? For I have come to set. He takes responsibility for doing this. And so the gospel destroys human relationships. And it destroys human relationships within the family. Each one of these, this, each set of these relationships in verse 35 conveys authority. <coughs> a son to the father. Set a son against the father. In that relationship, who has the authority? The father has the authority. A daughter against her mother. In the daughter-mother relationship, who has the authority? The mother has the authority. Daughter-in-law to mother-in-law. In Bible times, <laughs> uh, the mother-in-law had the authority. Hey, by the way, Jesus didn't have to come to divide daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, did he? <laughs> this would just be a further division. <laughs> now, each person in that set of relationships, in light of the gospel, has to decide who has the authority. Does your father now, once you come to Christ, does your father now have the authority over you? Does Christ have the authority over you? Does your mother have your, the authority over you, or is Christ your authority? Does your mother-in-law have the authority over you, or is Christ your authority? So Christ is turning things upside down, and this is what causes the division. Now remember, he's telling this to the disciples who he's sending out. This is what they need to expect to see happen. Okay, uh, So a person... In authority, you say, I'm going to follow Christ. And uh, uh, the father says to the son, you think that's a good idea? What about the family business? And when he says that, guess what he expects the son to do? Listen and obey. But in this case, they're to follow Christ, not the father. Or to the daughter. Well, but your dad's ill. You can't become a disciple of Christ and say you're giving things up when your dad's ill. You need to stick around. And by the way, women followed Christ. Did you know that? He actually had women on his team. Susanna. Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. Joanna. It says they ministered to him with their means. And uh, when they ministered to women, Jesus probably had women who helped him minister to other women. So you can see that this would cause a lot of division. And Jesus expects to be obeyed. And when there comes to choices on who's the authority over your life, is it your father, your mother, your mother-in-law, or is it Christ? Jesus says, I'm demanding that I am the authority. The gospel, the scripture, has authority over you. And to that end, there's going to be division. Now look at verse 37. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now he goes beyond three sets. Because it, your brother could be involved in this thing. It could be a split between two brothers. Split between two sisters. Not only son-father, daughter-mother, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, but even other members of the household. In fact, that's sort of a reiteration of back in verse 21. Look what it says there. 21. <coughs> Brother will deliver a brother to death, the father his son. Children will rise up against their parents, cause them to be put to death. So you see that 
it goes beyond just parent-children relationships. Now, I think that when Jesus talks about this, and in verse 36, about divisions in families, he has an Old Testament scripture in mind. One that I mentioned last week. This week we're going to turn to it. I want you to turn over to Micah chapter 7. Okay? You may see that that's a cross-reference in your Bible. Now, all you're going to have to do is go back about 20 pages and you're going to find Micah. And it's in the Minor Prophets. It's only about, you know, once you get past Matthew, just go keep going and you'll get Micah. And you'll find Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. And when you get there, look at verse 2. Micah chapter 7 and verse 2. And this is the prophet speaking. In my preaching class, I tell the students when they turn to people to another passage, don't speak until they hear the pages. No longer fluttering. I'll have students in my preaching classes will say, now turn over to Isaiah and they'll start reading it right away. No one even hears anything they say. So what you want to do is you always, just see if you want to become a preacher, I'm giving you the first lesson. <laughs> okay. Now look at, uh, look at verse 2. This is 7. Micah 7 and verse 2. The faithful man has perished from the earth. This is Micah describing the condition in his day. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. Now notice these family relationships that are spoken of. That they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. The great man utters his evil desire, and they scheme together. <clears throat> now what Micah is describing here is a society, that uh, a Jewish society that's become faithless. They're not doing what God wants them to do. There are some who are faithful, but guess what? They're, they're losing their lives. And if you look down at verse 5, for example, it says, do not trust a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors his father, and daughter rises up against the mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Have you seen any of those kind of words before? Jesus is nearly quoting verbatim this particular passage of Scripture. And then look at verse and keep on going. It says, A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Same thing Jesus said. Therefore, verse 7, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So what Jesus is saying when he sends out his disciples is he thinks back upon Micah and he realizes the condition in his day, are similar to the conditions in Micah's day. Israel is a faithless people. Her leaders have compromised and are collaborating with the Roman government and the people are being oppressed. And So you have a group of faithless people and a small remnant of faithful people. And so Jesus says, when I send you out with this gospel message, 
expect there to be further divisions in the family and there's going to be persecutions. And that's what he's alluding to here. So I thought it was important for you to see that. Now go back to Matthew chapter 10 and look at verse 37. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. If your devotion to your parents is more than your devotion to your Lord, then you're not worthy of me. End of verse 37. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's talking about children loving their parents and parents loving their children. And the two key words there in verse 37 are the words more. He who loves his father and mother more than me he who loves his son and daughter more than me. That's the first key word. It speaks of degrees. Degrees of devotion. Degrees of devotion. The second word is the word worthy. Not worthy of me. Not worthy of me. That speaks of deserving something. Degree speaks of, or more speaks of degree of devotion. Worthy of me speaks of deserving to be his follower. Okay? So when you look at the word more, what Jesus is saying is we must not allow our devotion to our family to stand in way the way of our devotion to Christ. Christ must have preeminence in our life. Christ must be our first devotion. Now he doesn't say don't love your father and mother or your children. Doesn't. He doesn't say abandon natural affection for your family. The issue is degree. Don't be devoted to them more than you are to Christ. Christ must have the preeminence. Uh, Wheaton College in uh, Wheaton, Illinois, where Billy Graham went to school and a lot of other Christians went to school. It was a great school in the early days. Still a good school, but it was just at one time it was like the preeminent school. And that, is, that was their motto. Their motto on their logo is Christ preeminent. And that's what he demands of us. If you don't give him preeminence, notice you're not deserving, you're not worthy of me. See? Uh, not worthy of me means not worthy of being my disciple. So, He's warning these guys. He's saying, when you go out there, you need to realize that, first of all, you're going to have family members going to say, you're going to go where? You're in the fishing business. You hear Peter's dad say, you're in the fishing business. What do you think you're doing? And by the way, when you go out there and preach, the people who hear the gospel are going to go through the same thing. Their parents are going to say, you're going to do what? And... So just get ready for it, okay? Your love for Christ must be more than your love for your family. And then the next thing, notice what he says. Your love and devotion for Christ must be more than your love for yourself. Look what he says there in verse 8, verse 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not 
worthy of me. You see the word worthy there? So we have worthy mentioned three times in two verses. One, you're not worthy of Christ if your devotion is to your family more than your devotion to Christ. Number two, you're not worthy of Him if your devotion is to your life more than Christ. Now look at the two phrases there, two important phrases. Phrase number one in verse 38, take His cross. When Jesus talked about taking up a cross, the cross is an instrument of death. That's what it was in the Roman Empire. Uh, this was the instrument of execution. When a person was guilty of a capital crime, they were crucified on a cross. It was a horrible death, and it was designed by the Roman government to drive the fear of Caesar right into the depths of your soul. Because if you could see somebody put on a cross and their body writhing, jer jerking like a fish out of water, you would think twice before you ever did anything deserving that. Some Caesars crucified as many as 2,000 people at once. They lined them up for miles every you know, 25 yards or so. They'd have another cross and they would kill that person. And if people were coming into town, boy, they would just, it would just hit them. And you, you would know that when you walked into that town, this was a law and order town. And it scared you to death. Now when Jesus says you need to take up your cross, he's talking about picking up the instrument of death, okay, and carrying it. Notice the next phrase, take up your cross in verse 38, and then the next phrase, follow after me. That means follow Jesus' example. He literally had to take up his cross when he was condemned to die, and he had to carry it to the site of his execution. Now, Jesus doesn't expect each one of these disciples to literally pick up a cross, you know, when he sends them out. Start carrying your cross, you know. But he's using it in a sense of a metaphor. Uh, he's saying that uh, the cross represents death. That's basically what he's saying. Losing your life. Okay? Now, I want you to notice something in verse 38. He doesn't say you need to be willing to carry your cross. You see that? A lot of us say, well, I'm willing. I'm willing to die. No, he doesn't say that. Look what he said. He who does not, what? Take his cross. He's not willing to take it. You need to carry it. In other words, it's more than a willingness to die for Christ. When you come to Christ... You need to consider yourself under a death sentence already. And right now, from this point on, when you come to Christ, you need to consider yourself walking toward your execution site. Just consider yourself dead already. The sentence has been passed. Guess what? You're as dead as if you, were, you didn't have breath in your body. Just can start considering yourself dead and that you're walking right toward your execution. If you're not willing to give your devotion to Christ more than your own life, not willing to love Christ more than your own physical life, then you're not worthy to be his disciple. You see why when you go through a passage verse by verse and you just really deal with it, you realize how radical Jesus' statements were? These are really radical statements. This is a call to, you know, real surrender. Now, remember this, he is speaking to those that he's sending out. 
Uh, he's not speaking just to every lay person, but he is speaking to those that are going out into full-time ministry. He says, when you go out there, you know, just expect to find all kinds of bad things. Expect to be persecuted. In fact, you know what? Just consider yourself dead already. Just say, I'm dead. My whole devotion is to Christ no matter what the cost. Okay? So, that's what he's saying. He's talking about who is worthy to be his disciple. Your devotion has to be more toward him than your parents, family, and more toward him than even your own life. Okay, now look at verse 39. Verse 39. He who finds his life, that's the guy who tries to hold on to his life, will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake, will find it. Now, all of Jesus' sayings, this is something that was new to me, of all of Jesus' sayings, this is the one that's quoted the most in the four Gospels. This saying right here of Jesus is the one that's quoted the most in the four Gospels. So I guess they would think that that's important. If you try to save your life, and he's talking about your physical life, get out in a situation, they say, we're going to kill you if you don't stop this nonsense. And you say, oh, I don't want to die. Try to save your life, guess what you're going to end up doing? You're going to lose your life, and he that is willing to lose his life or loses his life for my sake will save him. Now notice the tenses. The tenses. He who finds his life, that would be present tense, wouldn't it? He finds, will lose it. That's future tense, isn't it? Notice how the present affects the future. He who loses his life right now, just you're dead already, and you and if it comes to the situation where you're in a situation where you know it's your life or denying Christ, uh, you do that. In the future, you will gain your life. So, he's describing two attitudes. Self-preservation or self-sacrifice. He's describing those who are willing, who will do whatever it takes to avoid being a martyr, dying for Christ, and those who are willing to die for Christ and being a martyr. Two attitudes. Self-preservation. I'm not going to scare. I'm not going to die. And, look, I'm not going to be a missionary. They might send me to... I might be eaten by cannibals. Yeah. Speaking of cannibals, yeah. I don't know. no, okay. <laughs> Two cannibals sitting down at a table. Great heat. One cannibal says to the other, I "Can't stand my mother-in-law." The guy said, "What well, doesn't matter? Just eat the mashed potatoes." <laughs> I knew I had to throw a mother-in-law joke in here because this was getting too heavy at this point. Okay. Now, okay, now how do you... Terrible. My wife said you better not say that. Okay. That was the only thing in this message that I prepared. The rest of it turned up. Amen. Now, how can you, what does this mean that if you lose your life, you'll gain it? How can you gain your life if you're dead? How can you gain your physical life if you're physically dead? 
not talking about spiritual life. Oh, you're going to have... not talking about that. How do you gain your physical life if you're physically dead? How did Jesus gain his physical life when he was physically dead? God raised him from the dead physically. And that's what he's saying here. Just, he's why he says, follow me. Jesus didn't cower down when Paulus said, Don't you know I have the authority to put you to death? Jesus said, oh, oh. He laid down his life. But he gained his life. Three days later, God physically raised him from the dead. That is what happens to us. Yes, our lives may be taken, but guess what? We have the guarantee that God will raise us from the dead. And when he comes back and he sets his kingdom up on earth, it's going to be an earthly kingdom, and we're going to be raised in our physical bodies, and we're going to be here on earth with him. So we are to give our devotion to Christ more than our family, and even more than our own physical life. That's the teaching that he had. So, I want to call that Jesus speaking to uh, ministers. Those that he's sending out. Jesus' message to the clergy. Now look how he speaks about lay people. Speaks to the others. uh, Or about the others. Look at verse 40. He who receives you, the twelve apostles, he who receives you, receives me. It's talking about hospitality. Now you say, when you go out there and you preach, uh, when somebody is hospitable toward you, and they receive you, they welcome you, they welcome to me. To welcome the envoy, or to welcome the ambassador, or to welcome the representative of Christ, is to welcome Christ. And then look what he says in verse 40. And he who receives me receives him who sent me, who is who? Whom? God the Father. Receive a minister of God, show him hospitality, and it's the same as receiving Jesus Christ, and it's the same as receiving the Father. And uh, so, you receive an apostle, to receive an apostle is to receive Jesus, to receive Jesus is to receive the Father, to have Jesus and the Father, I mean, that's basically salvation. To reject the apostles is to reject Jesus, and to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And you've condemned yourself. And when the apostles go into a home like that, they're just a... pronounce God's condemnation. So now we see he's not talking to the apostles, but or about the apostles, he's talking about other people. So we see that reception is important. How you receive... The clergy, how do you receive a minister is important. But now he's going to switch from receiving a minister to the reward. Watch, there are rewards for receiving a minister. Look at verse 41. He who receives a prophet, that would be a spokesman on behalf of God, in the name of a prophet shall receive what? A prophet's reward. <laughs> So if you say, well, come on in. You're ministering for who? The Messiah? Come in. You're going to get the same reward as the prophet who is sent out there to be a spokesman for the Messiah. The exact same reward, it says in verse 41. And then look at this, verse 41. And he who receives a righteous man, 
in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Now he expands it. He expands it from just welcoming a prophet to welcoming a righteous man. This would be a God-fearing, law-keeping, faithful follower of the Messiah. You receive that person, guess what you receive? You receive that person's reward. Look at verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones, he goes from a prophet to a righteous man to a little one. Anyone who gives one of these little ones a cup of water that's showing them hospitality in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say unto you, he shall by no means lose his reward. You know, some people, all they could afford to give was a cup of water. Peasants were so poor, they couldn't afford to give anything. But they could still show hospitality by giving somebody a drink of water. And he says, if you do that, you're going to get a reward. You will not be deprived of your reward. It will not go unnoticed. Now, that's not taking care of a prophet. That's not receiving a pious person. This is receiving a little one. Who would a little one be? If you have a prophet, and you have a righteous, pious, law-abiding, upstanding Christian... And then a little one. Who would a little one be? I guess that would maybe be like not somebody who's strong in the faith, keeps the law. Maybe a new convert. Maybe even a child. Maybe people in the margins, like a person like Matthew, tax collector. Uh, people on the margins, widows and orphans and you know, people out, out here, but they've just made a commitment to Christ, but they're little ones. They're just new in the faith. If you receive them, you will get a reward. That's what it says. Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water in the name of the disciple, I'm going to give you a guarantee. I guarantee it. I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So, we're not all called into full-time ministry. But we all minister. And when we minister, and we minister to God's people, we receive those rewards. So if you minister to a prophet, what kind of reward do you get? Prophet's reward. Now notice there's no difference in the reward. No difference between the person who's going out and preaching the gospel, he gets a reward, and the person who receives the prophet gets what kind of reward? Same. See, we always think that ministers are somebody special and they have a special place in God's kingdom. That's not the correct way of seeing that. You pray for the ministry. You help the ministry. You support the ministry. You get the same reward. That's what he's saying here. He's gone from receiving to rewards. So all service, in a sense, is God sees. It doesn't go unnoticed. It it's rewarded. It's his and God's team. There's no big shots. Prophet's not more important than the person who gives a cup of water. And you receive their reward. So, to receive a little one, listen, to receive a little one, to receive a righteous person, to receive a prophet, it's the same as receiving Jesus. 
and to say, to receive Jesus is to receive the Father. And that means salvation. Now, he's not talking about a work salvation. But I'm going to show you what he says. Just turn your Bible over to Matthew 25. Watch this very carefully. You need to really understand this, because this is where evangelicals really get caught up and make mistakes. You know, this section from verses 31 to the end of the chapter in Matthew 25 talks about uh, the king. You see in verse 34, this person is named the king. Jesus is talking, giving a parable here, and he's describing himself as a king. And he says, look, I was, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink of water. I was naked, and you gave me clothes. I was in prison, and you visited me. Remember all those things? And they said, Lord, when did we see that? And he said, well, when you did it to the least, What? Of these, the little ones, the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. If you did it to me, guess who you did it to? And then he goes on. And he says, "I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was whatever." And they, he said, "And you didn't, you didn't even give me a drink of water." The Lord, when did, we, we never saw you like he said. If you did it not to the least of these, you did it what? Not to me. Now, those who did it to him are going to receive a reward. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom of God, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You get the reward. By the way, I want you to notice the concept of the kingdom of God has been prepared. This has been God's theme. This is God's purpose. From the beginning of the world, his purpose was to set up a kingdom. The kingdom of God is the most important thing. But look what he says down at the bottom, verse 45, for example. Then, or verse 44, uh, to those who don't. Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say unto you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, therefore you didn't do it to my father, look what you get. These will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into everlasting life. Now notice, it sounds like a work salvation, doesn't it? And if you read it just that way, you'll say, oh, it looks like if we do the good things, we get saved, and we do bad things, we get condemned. And I can say that's true, but that's not the basis of salvation. This is the identity marker. Do you want to know what a real Christian looks like? Here's what a real Christian looks like. The real Christian looks like somebody who gives a drink of water, visits, helps people even on the margins. That's the real Christian. That's the person that gets salvation. And those who say, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And he says, what? I never knew you. When I looked, you didn't look like one of those that are mine. Because a real Christian does what? This, 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 and this. It's not what you say. It's what you do. It's not that you say you have faith. It's that your faith indeed is demonstrated. So these are the marks of a Christian. This is what a Christian looks like. We're saved by faith. But it's a faith that what? Works. It works itself out in daily life. So a person can say, well, I walked in aisle. I was baptized. I but you don't see any evidence of it. There's no reward for that. 
That is an indication that you do not have the mark of oppression. So Jesus, in uh, chapter 10, basically ends that with the person who gives the cup of water even to one of those little ones will not lose his reward. And then chapter 11 and verse 1 says this. And it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so Jesus sends out, we know from Luke 9, Jesus sends out the twelve, and they go out their way and preach, and Jesus goes in this other direction, and he also preaches, and 13 of them out there now are ministering to this harvest that is ready to be picked. And so that's where we will pick up in the fall when we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel. Next week, Psalms for the Sunday. Lord, we thank you that you give us evidences of salvation. It's not what we say, it's what we do. It's not, it's not even what we do apart from faith. It's faith that's demonstrated by what we do. Oh Lord, help us to realize that masses of people, especially in our Western culture, say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, but there's no evidence of a regenerated spirit. There's no evidence of, of eternal life in their bones. Oh, Lord, help us to look at this. Those of us who are ministers, those of us who are out there ministering, and people don't like it when we do it, help us to realize that our devotion must be over you rather than over our reputation, what people think, even over our lives. And those of us, Lord, who are not called into full-time ministry, and we realize that we have a ministry, we're to minister in these ways that we've seen today. Oh Lord, help us to exhibit the marks of the Christian. Help us to realize that our ministry is as important and will be rewarded to the same degree as those that are in full-time ministry. Help us to see that there are no second-class Christians. We're in this together. We're part of a team. You call us one body. Jesus Christ being the head. Oh Lord, help us to take these lessons to heart and implement them in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.